fellow citizens. Let's, let's be let's be, be bluntly honest. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? In my opinion, still and perhaps always will be the greatest. There's so much there. Okay, yeah. What are we doing, great champion? You help to unite our nation. The cry for freedom has only sport to pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody, nobody's, nobody's, calling, no, no, nobody, nobody, nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. Welcome back to Sports and Society on uh, April 26th. This is Brad. I'm here with Kyle. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing pretty well. Looking forward to unpacking and kind of seeing how we feel about a world with a little bit of sports but with no one watching. It is a it is a brave new world and we're excited to bring a a brave new intro track into that world. Yeah, so maybe you uh are uh thinking we are cooler now that we have <laughs> uh I don't think anyone's thinking that, Carl. <laughs> yeah. So I was trying to think of a way to like uh <laughs> push back on our coolness uh, despite the coolness of our new intro but we are indebted to Trad Godsey uh, for putting that together for us I'm really grateful for it and it makes me smile every time I listen to it uh, and he says he, he has some some other iterations sitting around that he's still working on so uh, it might be something that we can splice in different ones here and there but it's it's a fun thing to have and we're super grateful and thankful to Trad for that. Yes, thank you very much. I, uh, I'm pretty stoked about it. It makes it feel more real in some ways, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. But uh, all right. So tell me what you've been paying attention to this week, Kyle. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing what you made of the Michael Jordan documentary. I can't mm-hmm. think the Last Dance is mm-hmm. that what it's called? Yeah. So I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on that. Uh, a couple, or I guess just kind of one specific thing, uh, as I've mentioned before, I'm for some reason paying a lot of attention to what Formula One is doing at this time. And I think I actually kind of, I spend a lot of time thinking about why I care about it. And it becomes apparent to me that I I think it's a legitimate question and intrigue, uh, partly because Formula One is so massive and the way in which it is massive is different. It's not unique, but it's different than a lot of other sports. Um, so it's it's a truly global sport in that not only do people all over the world pay attention to it, but the sport itself moves around the world. Mm. And I think a sport that does that in the current climate, not just corona climate, but climate change, uh, is going to have a lot of questions to answer, uh, maybe more so than other sports because of that. And then also the the like what is closely connected with that is the logistics that go into making Formula One work. And so when you think about the effects of a social or cultural or political chain on change on an institution, what that really means is a change in logistics in a lot of ways. And so the amount of logistical changes uh, that are going to have to happen in Formula One coming in, into the future is going to be interesting to me. And so very specifically in the immediate, how they're handling the change right now. And my other point of intrigue is uh, esports. Uh, and if 
if we're going to look back in 50, 100, 200 years and kind of look at Corona as a threshold or a watershed moment for esports, I wouldn't be surprised. And so in that way, thinking about the future of Formula One as an esport. And within that are a lot of interesting questions for me. So one is there are professional Formula esport drivers. And what has really fascinated me is that they're competing right now with real Formula One drivers. And uh, this past week, uh, Charles Leclerc, who drives for Ferrari, he's really young. I think he's 22, maybe. Uh, finally got equipment to join the races. He hadn't done it yet. And a and his very first race he entered, he won, which, which I found interesting. He had obviously used simulators before. Uh, they do it to learn the tracks, but he had never really raced. You know, they just do it for uh, education purposes. Uh, but truly learning to race on the simulator, and he's the best in the world after like a few days doing it. And so that says a lot about... Um, the power of the technology and the nuance of the technology, I think, but also about the skill of these drivers. Um, and then it says a lot about uh, how we're going to watch it. And so um, this has taken me a lot of words to get through all this. I apologize. <laughs> um, the last point of significance for me was that um, the way Charles Leclerc is engaging with it is through his Twitch channel. Hmm. And so you, you, I watched the race through his Twitch, and not wa I didn't watch the actual coverage that was online by that was sponsored and held by Formula One, and it was like fifty times more interesting than mm. watching the coverage. And it was the first time I've watched esports driving and kind of felt what you feel when watching a real race. Uh, is it, it was tense because you could see how tense he was. Um, and he, on his Twitch channel, like banters a lot with other drivers that are doing this. Uh, and he, they're like, all right, no talking now. And they like shut it down and they all like lock in hard. And so that was interesting. Hmm. Um, all that to say, I, I, I'm just intrigued with this esports world and then how these big massive sports are negotiating it. You know what I find most fascinating about this, Kyle, is that I would have expected that out of the two of us, I would be the one that would struggle the most with not having sports to watch. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that this is indication that you're perhaps struggling with not having that uh, channel right now. Um, I don't know how that, that resonates that with you. No, yeah, I would be game to unpack that more. Because um, I think leading up to this, I was watching less sports than I ever have. Um, and, and yet I can feel the draw in weird ways now. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. I might have to think more about it. Hmm. Interesting. Well, and I did want to ask here as well. Are you, um, are you paying any attention to formula E stuff? So I was, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm still, I would say I'm still in the process of just kind of educating myself on it. Um, their uh, Fox does have a series that they're continuing to keep up, and they're also continuing it through uh, esports versions of it on simulators. Okay, and those for those that don't know, E Formula E is the same as Formula One, except it's with electric cars, um, right? Which I think 
is their move towards a more sustainable future. And I think we'll see more of that moving forward, but who knows? Um, yep. Interesting. I, and so I did have one comment on your esports watershed moment. I am kind of leaning the other direction on that at the moment. Um, yeah. And I think it's interesting because I do think that there are large swaths of our society where that's the case. Um, uh, esports are very compelling, but I think it's largely linked to places and individuals that have played those sports before. Because um, mm-hmm. I think um, as much as I love watching somebody play FIFA, it's never as compelling as watching a game for me, but I think that might be different were I someone that played FIFA on a regular basis and understood the nuances of it. Cause I think with sports, there's always this compelling component of, I can't do that, that what that mm-hmm. person just did. Um, and when you're not playing the sports and you have no interest in playing the, uh, the video game version of the sports, I think that that takes away some of that aspect. So I think for some, it certainly will be that way, but I think, you know, people myself and older that are not as invested in the video game culture, I think it's going to be a hard press to get them uh, involved. And I think you'd also find that they're the ones, not myself, but those that are 40 and 50 are the ones that are spending the most money on sports. So that's going to be, of course, the a big sway as well. Yeah. Yeah, that makes me think that what it was that was compelling about watching the Twitch channel was watching the driver. Uh, as a human being and not just an avatar and were i to be in a position to like give feedback to formula one that's what i would tell them like if if you're gonna if you want to cash in on this i think that's where it is if somehow you you can create an environment where you can see the driver and see what the driver sees at the same time and racing lends itself to being a more interesting digital thing to watch maybe than something like FIFA mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways. So I don't know. I'm probably making more of it than there is there, but <laughs> that's what I was paying attention to. You. What about you? Very good. Well, there are um, several things I want to run through here regarding kind of sports coming back. Um, so here locally, locally meaning the United States, um, We've got the MMA has apparently got three events playing in Florida. That's right, Jeff. They're coming to Florida. I expect you to do something about this. Um, uh, <laughs> but of course they are because the MMA is stupid beyond belief. Um, NBA, NFL draft is kind of surprising to me. It shouldn't have been perhaps, but how many folks of my friends and otherwise kind of love this bit of sports normalcy that the NFL draft took place um, this week? Um, mm. even though I think we have no idea what the NFL season will look like. Yeah. Um, really interesting. But then the two biggest things, one on the negative side and one on the positive side for me personally, um, the Bundesliga is somehow still planning on starting up again on May 9th, which I just cannot fathom at this yeah. point in time. Um, it seems really irresponsible, but um, I... I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of money on the table. and I, um, uh, Well, let me give my other thing, and then I have a bigger overarching point to make, I suppose, out of that. Um, yeah. Uh, but the French sports minister, um, which, of course, the French have a sports minister in the U.S., doesn't. <laughs> How is this the case? But uh, <laughs> the, the French sports minister has come under all kinds of heat 
for giving this press conference and talking about how it wouldn't be the end of the world if the Tour de France didn't happen. And there's one particular quote that said, um, sport will not be prioritized in our society. It's not a priority today in the decisions taken by the government. Um, which I am like, yes, thank you for saying that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet this individual, and it's hard to know because it's a, it's a woman. So of course there's all kinds of gender dynamics that come into play, but she has taken all kinds of heat for making this statement from folks that are like, she's the sports minister. She's supposed to be advocating for us. This kind of fatalist attitude is not productive. And I just, mm-hmm. I really want to congratulate her for kind of putting sports in its proper place Mm-hmm. in society um and i think the big thing to take away from this is that there's a lot of fear from from people and the bundesliga has used this and so have all the cycling teams and don't get me wrong i i understand how tenuous the uh, well let me take that back i don't understand how tenuous the um, cycling funding structure is but it's super tenuous um and so they're all worried that their leagues are going to go under, that they're going to go bankrupt and all this stuff. And I just, that argument for me does not hold much sway at all. Mm-hmm. Like there will, there will always be a German professional soccer league. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if the current iteration gets into financial trouble, it will be bailed out by some investor or the government will bail it out. I'm not worried about that happening. I know that there will be people you know, if I'm looking at cycling, the people that, um, the mechanics that take care of the bikes, you know, there's likely to be folks that are laid off. Um, and I think it's incumbent on us to take care of those people. But I do think that, um, you know, there, this, we're, we're talking about systems that are not particularly well set up if they're going to fold because of this. And so I think it's, uh, this whole argument that, um, we need to save the way things are right now is a faulty argument. And that reality is we could wind up with a more robust mm-hmm. system out of this in in the long run. Um, because I just am not worried about these businesses going under the economy. I mean, so let's take cycling as an example. And sorry, now I'm the one talking. Yeah, to I, I love this. Yeah. Um, but so cycling is very much based on a sponsorship basis. So even if they were to run the tour de France right now, you know the national lottery and uh which sponsors a couple teams the netherlands and and a couple other national lotteries funding teams um are we thinking that they're going to have the funding to be able to do that moving forward do we think that you know um the french postal service is going to be able to fund these teams that this uh, you know my favorite team mitchelton scott which we've talked about that this winery which is almost entirely based on uh tourism income is going to have the capacity to sponsor a team even if we go forward with the season as expected this it's not like just going forward the season is going to change the financial outlook for this stuff at this point so i am uh, uh, perfectly fine and i think we have to see general or general uh governor cuomo made some great comments this week about how there is nothing worse than death and so it's not like we're talking about a um uh, a world that's going to be worse off if we are cautious about this that we will recover and there will be hardships but i'm not worried about these professional sports not coming back after this is over. There are going to be leagues, you know, there will be a professional cycling organization. And perhaps you could argue that anything is better than what is operating right now. Maybe this is a chance for the writers to take their power back. But uh, all that to say, uh, I just find those arguments so false and appreciate the French sports minister for speaking out. Mm. 
Several thoughts. Thanks for that. That was fascinating. Uh, we need Obama to be sports czar, yes, which we have said please. many times before. Um, secondly, Calling on you, Biden. Yeah. Secondly, the thought of uh, what would happen if Obama said something like that in America. Oh, my word. It's hard to imagine. Oh, my uh, word. Yeah. That, that might start the revolution. Um, the bad revolution. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's fascinating how easy it is to see the significance of all this when you say something like, okay, what's worse, losing cycling sponsorship or losing a Bundesliga season or like death and poverty, right? It's like, well, sports will be fine. Um, granted, like, there might be individuals that lose salaries and there are a lot of people in the sports world that we don't see uh, that are losing their jobs. And in that, I'm like extremely sympathetic. Mm -hmm. uh, but as for, yeah, like you said, at, at the top level, these these leagues as they exist as these massive, massive institutions, the product that undergirds those leagues is still in place. There's still going to be great soccer players, and great soccer players are going to want to find a field to play on to make millions of dollars. Like that's not going away. And, and we're still going to want to watch and, them. And do we're that. going to want to watch it, and we'll do whatever it takes to watch it. Uh, so yeah, I'm with you that none of that's going away, and there are larger things of worth here. And so yeah, same applauding such a comment in public. So again, I, I feel for all of the people that are out of jobs because of this, but um, I, I think that argument is being used by people that have power to yeah. consolidate power and make sure that they don't lose it. So, well said. Well, let's talk about a powerful personality in Jordan here. Um, yeah, what are what are some of your initial takeaways? I. First off, I just found it wildly entertaining. Um, I don't know about you, but it just it filled that need for sports stuff <laughs> in mm -hmm. some ways. And mm -hmm. I, I think it was interesting to me on some level because I don't know what I was expecting. And I don't, it's, this is not a bad thing, but it's much more of a traditional sports documentary than I kind of expected it to be in the way that they've marketed it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's just very traditional in some ways, you know, the interviews spliced with storytelling in the way that it's been done. Um, but just some of these things that I don't think I knew about during the time um, make it so compelling. So, mm -hmm. you know, the front office conflict stuff um, really shines a light on how much has changed and how much stuff has stayed the same. So uh, if you haven't seen the show, um, the general manager of the team, um, whose name is escaping me at the moment, uh, really didn't like Phil Jackson. Jerry Krause. Jerry Krause, yeah. Um, and, of course, the owner is a notorious uh, asshole anyway, mm -hmm. but we won't get into that right now. Um, the Jerry Krause essentially destroyed this dynasty. They could have gone on for, I don't know, two, three more years afterwards. Um, and there's a lot of stuff involved. in You know, the owners um, uh, were an ass about Scottie Pippen's money. Um, which just rings all kinds of bells. I kind of think of this player power thing as being a new thing, but Scotty was doing this back in 97. So um, that kind of puts a, a different light on some of my thoughts about the current conversations. Um, 
but yeah just some fascinating stuff and uh man scotty scotty had to make that money man mm-hmm. how are you not gonna pay him yeah, maybe to get into the specifics of that, that was one thing that was super compelling. And we, we had a sim- similar experience with it in the Scottie Pippen case. So uh, the documentary makes it clear that Scottie Pippen was arguably the second best player in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was like the sixth highest paid player on the Bulls. Uh, and it was partly because he signed uh, a long-term seven-year contract early on in his career before he was the second best player in the NBA. A couple things stood out to me about that. One is Jordan's kind of, he wasn't sympathetic to Scotty, uh, I, I felt. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think at one point he even made the statement, like, Scotty let me down. And it was because Scotty Pippen delayed surgery on his foot such that he would not start that seventh season on time. And Michael Jordan felt that, like, Scotty Pippen was letting him down. I don't think you would hear that today. Um, I think hmm. the the phrase that always stands out to me today is doing what I got to do for myself and my family. And I think that's pretty ubiquitous in the NBA, especially right now, is that you're not beholden to your teammates or your team as much as you are to yourself. Uh, and there's a certain amount of lauded individualism when it comes to making money in the NBA right now. And so that player power thing feels very different uh that that's one thing i think that really comes across to me well i think that's that's really interesting too and i think it speaks to the difference in some ways um and the reason perhaps that there will never be another jordan Mm -hmm. um just in the atmosphere i mean jordan clearly cared about his money and wanted to get his money but um I think what comes across for me in the context of what we've seen and what I think we're going to see is that winning was the most important thing for Jordan and the biggest motivating factor of all. I mean, there's all these stories out there about how Jordan would kind of be doing his thing and then someone would tee him off or challenge him. And that's when we saw what he could really do. Um, And so I think it's interesting that Jordan may very much, and I think there's some stuff that's come out since then that, uh, since the documentary aired that um, talked about how there wasn't actually strife in the locker room that mm-hmm. Jordan may have felt that way, but it wasn't like he was right, right. actively angry at Pippen, but I can mm-hmm. see it from the perspective of like, you know, I understand why you're doing this and I think you're right to do this, but man, it pisses me off that I'm the one that has to pick up the stuff, the pieces mm-hmm. afterwards. Um, yeah. That's well said. So it's, it's a very human yeah uh, understanding in some ways yeah yeah and then similar to you i think what was most interesting and what kept me watching and was the source of the entertainment was the gaining of information about something that was so powerful in our life and our generation Mm -hmm. yet i was not paying attention to like truly right like I think at that point in my life, my engagement with sports was so within the mainstream and so normalized and not asking critical questions, just consuming and consuming and consuming. And so getting a little bit of a behind the curtain view of what I was consuming, uh, I think is really interesting. So kind of like almost like I'm I'm not 
going to say like I'm like fully enlightened, but it's that that kind of like human process of like becoming enlightened to a certain extent about what was being fed to you. Mm-hmm. So literally like a Wizard of Oz kind of thing. Um, granted, I think one could very easily argue that the documentary itself is still more of a feeding uh, and so it's up to the viewer to watch it in a particular way to gain that sort of perspective. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, to look back on what was being fed to us and what is even more significant about that is that what was being fed to us was really, really powerful cultural force, I would argue. Um, so that's what's interesting mm-hmm. to me uh, probably more than anything else. Well, I think the other thing that stands out to me um, is how – um, open Jordan seems to be being yeah. thus far. Yeah, um, I agree. This is a guy that we've never kind of seen, I think, open up on this level. And just to see him kind of relaxed in his in his chair. Um, Drinking kind of, a lot of bourbon. <laughs> Those are some huge pours of bourbon. <laughs> but I, I, I just, I really appreciate him being willing to be involved to that extent. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it goes back to, I think about having seen this now and going back to his comments about how he's worried about how people will perceive him after they see this. Um, I don't know. Those kind of combine together to make me like the guy a lot more than I have before. Mm-hmm. Uh, just from the sense that he um, he seems to be reflecting more on who he was and who he is than I think um, we might have expected him to be given what we've what we've been fed about his narrative up to now. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, too. I think my last point is it is somehow, and it would be interesting to like kind of dig in of why, but Scotty Pippen was incredible. And like seeing clips of him, it's like, holy smokes, he was really, yes. really, really good. Uh, I, I like find the clips of him playing to be like when I get most excited for some reason. I'm like, wow, he was an incredible basketball player. Well, and I was—I'm just trying to fathom what, how someone today could have the story that he did, like coming mm-hmm. from, like what D two athlete or yeah. NAIA athlete could be drafted in the top five picks of the NBA draft. That's right. just staggering. I mean, we get excited when we see an uh, an Ivy League guy going in the first round. Um, right. You know, it's just a, it's staggering to think about someone at that level gathering that kind of momentum and energy and that clearly capacity to play the game. Mm-hmm. And it's that same piece, I think, of looking back and the looking back illuminating how the institutions have changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And like you see this very clear example of something that's very different than today and then wondering like, whoa, how did that happen? Uh, and then kind of like, subconsciously piecing uh, the story together in our heads, like telling that history as we're watching is a powerful force for a viewer, I feel like. Well, even to think about Jordan going three years at Carolina, like that never would have happened. Right, right. Yeah. The other one that stood out to me was their bodies. Mm. Like their literal physical bodies, Mm -hmm. how different an NBA body is today than it was then. What is yeah? I I was thinking the same thing because there have been several comments about how strong Michael Jordan was, but clearly he's not like the same physique that we see a lot of the modern players 
that look like football players out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'll just say the, the thing that stands out to me and is most interesting to me perhaps is the way that other players react to Jordan. Um, and so, you know, anything from Isaiah Thomas, the news was out today, he's challenging Michael's goat status. I'm like, Isaiah, you have lost all credibility to say anything <laughs> ever, but okay, fine. You have your say. Um, but to hear, um, like James Worthy talk about, you know, James Worthy, uh, you know, arguable top 50, top 75 player of all time. Talk about Jordan coming in as a freshman at UNC and realizing like halfway through the season that this guy's better than I am. Right. Is a staggering thing to think. And to hear Jordan and Bird or Johnson, Magic Johnson and Bird talking about how good Jordan was is, is so compelling to hear those greats uh, give that respect there. I think that's what stands out to me perhaps more than anything else. And it's unabashed and unabated praise. It, it's kind of that like uh, is like what else can I say other than like he's the best? Like, like you know, it's like their commentary is almost not interesting. Uh, it's not even like critical or revealing or illuminating. It, it's just like yeah, they're kind of speechless. I felt like whenever they were asked to talk about him. Well, I think yeah, they they seem to almost turn into fans in some yeah, level. Yeah, like they're like. Yeah. I enjoy watching Michael Jordan play basketball and that's uh he's doing things that I can't do which is again like that's what's so compelling in some level about these games. Mm-hmm. Oh, we could probably geek out on this for a really long time. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's dive in. Our main topic today that we wanted to talk about is is fandom. So, uh, Kyle, how did you kind of become a fan, man? Yeah, um, being a fan, being a spectator, uh, and kind of asking the question, what is that and how did I come into it? Um, I think I'm going to use one specific anecdote that you don't remember. Um, <laughs> but it, I, I remember it like so vividly for some reason. But you and I went to a Reds game in 2001. And it was Deion Sanders' first game back after having left baseball for a while. Hmm. Uh, and so on the res at that time would have been Deion Sanders, Ken Griffey Jr., and Barry Larkin. Uh, so I would say three players that were really big in our life mm-hmm. uh, is when it becomes when it comes to like exploring this concept of being a spectator or a fan. And Deion Sanders that game. Uh, had a hit and then he had a home run and then a three run home run. And then he bunted for a hit, uh, got the second on a fielder's choice and then, um, stole third. And so for a fan of knowing who and what Deion Sanders was, it's hard to come up with a better fan experience for Deion Sanders first game back. Uh, not to mention in that game, um, Barry Larkin made a couple amazing plays. Ken Griffey had a diving catch, and he hit a home run. So it was like this ultimate Reds fan experience. And so it like led me to the question of, like, why do we go? Uh, why do we watch? Why do we pay mm-hmm. money to do this? And what are we going for? And when you first posed this question to me as an idea, I was like, huh, I don't know if I'm going to have much on that. And then sitting with that question for just a minute of like coming like up with some things of like why we go and then reading a 
uh, a couple kind of academic articles like sociology, psychology articles that ask these questions as well and actually measure them, you find all these reasons to go. So just to like hit them really quickly, I guess, it would be um, there's a, a thrill-seeking element, an overall excitement, the community, the overall connection with others, a sense of home, a sense of place. We go to admire, to gawk, to heckle, a reminder of who and what we are, the overall aesthetics. There's something poetic about a great play. Seeing it in person is powerful. It's almost artistic. Um, it's possible to experience a broad range of emotions, and we get to share those emotions with others. Um, then, of course, uh, I, I would be... I would enjoy talking about the, our, a shared book we both love, Among the Thugs, in that we might go to fight, mm -hmm. to be violent, uh, to be brash. Uh, I think then there's these parts of like, what is it to say that I was there? What is that? And I think that gets into spectatorship as a status symbol, mm. the power of seeing something rare. So like the Mona Lisa, what I would call like the Mona Lisa experience. Uh, uh, or so to be there among celebrities or these people we only see on television. I think in like Ken Burns' baseball documentary, the sights and the sounds are really powerful, the nostalgia part of it. Uh, and then it being kind of like a therapeutic experience, almost like a meditation, uh, depending on the sport you're watching. But um, thinking about like baseball or going to watch golf is really slow. It's methodical, mm -hmm. but we could keep going. And so, like, I, I think what stands out to me is that like I never, ever, ever, ever asked the question growing up, like, why am I going? It was just intuitive. And when you take a step back, you realize like what is intuitive for one raised in a sports world is actually extremely complex and mm. really dense and interesting to unpack. So that's not a direct answer of like how and when I became a fan, but that's how I started to think about it. Well, it is interesting, I think, to look back on how many of my strongest memories are linked to sports in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I distinctly remember my freshman year of high school going to a Duke UVA basketball game and, and beating Duke and how exciting and thrilling that was. Um, and I think that the perhaps the thing that um, – so I don't go to many in-person sporting events. Uh, and so I think there's a different level to many things. Like I'll think about, I, I think I mentioned this on the podcast before, but I do find minor league baseball to be the most enjoyable um, mm -hmm. sporting event to attend because no one cares whether you win or lose. And it's almost like a, uh, a bonus if something positive happens. Um, mm -hmm. Like if you see somebody make a good play, like, oh, okay, very good. I wasn't expecting that. Um, the power which, of low expectations yeah, for happiness. Yeah. It, it's pretty strong. Um, yeah. But I think that there's something, particularly in the bigger sporting events, you know, the, the you know, we went, um, uh, a buddy of mine in high school, we went to Jordan's last home game as a wizard. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a pretty horrible game. Jordan was as washed as Jordan could be at that point. Um, I mean, he's still, you know, obviously incredible, but, um, he got blocked by Clarence Weatherspoon and that was like, a, Oh my goodness, what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. moment. Um, but there's something about the collective energy of being in that space that I find to be the most compelling. And so there's a shared experience element, 
mm-hmm. that um, uh, is really what I think resonates about being in the stadium, that there's very few places we can go where we know that pretty much everyone is having the same experience at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it gives you a kind of a kinship and a, and a, a comradeship with all those folks around you, even though you may have wildly differing opinions on just about everything else for that two to four hours, you feel like you're family or that you're the same. You think Mm -hmm. the same. And I think that that's a, that's something that we want to have as a feeling of a part of a collective whole. I think, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's what church gives us often and it's what, you know, why we love being on team sports and, you know, why we continue to root for our alma maters and things like this. Um, and so I think that that's, uh, that's the compelling piece that I think is so valid about the, the in-person stuff. The outside of that is the watching stuff, which I think is a little bit different. I have a less of an understanding of it in my own mind. Say more about that last piece. So I, I just, I don't know too much about what it is that watching sports gives us on television other than perhaps a uh, an escapism but mm-hmm. maybe uh, and maybe it's a connection back to that that other time maybe a memory of of where we've been before um mm-hmm. you know uh, uh a continued light connection but i i just there's it's certainly the the strength of feeling is not as strong and yet it's so much easier that it's um uh, clearly i'm still getting enough out of it to want to participate in that in that mm-hmm. thing Mm-hmm. So I I think if I were to pick one thing that is most fascinating to me to think about within this conversation and context is this exact point. And I think its significance is heightened given the certain circumstances we're in right now, mm-hmm. being that sports are close to coming back. Uh, for example, I was just reading about Thai, Taiwanese baseball is back. And there are not spectators, but they're putting dummies in the uh, stands, holding up signs and stuff, which I find fascinating and interesting. Feels uh, very, very Asian to me. But okay. <laughs> um, so sports coming back without spectators, what does that mean for why? And how we ingest sports is holistically dependent on the existing day um, is impossible to imagine. How important are fans in the stands to the television mm-hmm. experience? Uh, I feel like it's the what that means at large, but maybe we can just like talk about our, our impressions or things that come to mind there. And an example to kind of like explore that a little bit, I think uh, of in social psychology part of watching someone else watch something that appears to be important. And so when we get into that, we start talking about power. And I think about the power that is generated by like Jay-Z and Beyonce being in the front row. 
So you've got these important, powerful people watching something. And if I'm watching on television, I'm watching these important, powerful people watch something and therefore am led to believe that what they're watching is important, Mm -hmm. uh, if that makes sense. And so uh, even if it's not a celebrity or a powerful, important person, to see a stadium full of people as a television viewer kind of has the same effect, right? Uh, And so it, it... it pushes kind of the um, it pushes our boundaries. It pushes our margins of why we watch. Um, do we watch because others are watching, or do we watch because we truly love the nuances of the game of baseball? Um, and to further this a little bit more uh, is, I found it interesting that uh, in Taiwan yesterday there was a bench clearing brawl in a game. Hmm. Which I I think if you asked me like why bench clearing brawls happen, I would say it's partly because the fans love it mm-hmm. and there's like an energy to it that uh, the fans give that energy to the players that such that the players think that's they have to do this, you know. Like if if they don't leave the dugout, then um, they're they're not doing their part or they're not doing their job. But there was a bench clearing brawl without spectators. <laughs> Uh, which kind of like that stood out to me of like, oh, maybe the sports as they are played on the field aren't as dependent on the spectators as we think. Um, I don't know. So there's just a lot of questions in there, I feel like. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think that, um, you know, you and I are not the ones that can judge this on some level because we're you know, I um, I would prefer not to see pictures of celebrities when I'm watching games. Mm-hmm. I would prefer not to see really any pictures of people in the stands. I don't care about these people. Um, but I do think that there is um, something about having that uh, being confirmed. Like, I, I don't necessarily know that... Um, well, let's take let's take a weird example, right? You know, like you and I have grown up in a society where people don't watch cricket and it's made fun of constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that if we were to watch cricket and there were no fans there, we would start thinking to ourselves like maybe this is a weird thing, and you know, yeah. this isn't something we should be paying attention to. But then when you watch the IPL and you see you know these folks going crazy. Um, you're like, okay, I'm not alone. This really is, it's like a confirmation of mm-hmm. how compelling this game can be. And so I think from that level, it's important. That stuff really resonates for me. But I don't necessarily know that the celebrity stuff is as important, although I do think there's an element of it in the sense that the athletes themselves are celebrities. And so you watch to be able to talk about what um, those celebrities that are meaningful in your community or your friend group or your, um, your circle of work and, and friend acquaintances um, are talking about. I don't know. I think there's a pretty high percentage of folks that only watch sports because it gives them something to talk about with their friends and, and family. Mm-hmm. And so this leads me to thinking about the power of a sellout Mm. and a a few things I think to kind of suss that out or what that means is back when I paid attention to NFL, uh, it was also, I don't even know what the rules are now, but the blackout rules were such that if your team didn't sell out Mm -hmm. the game and you lived in that city, you didn't get to watch the game. 
which is some weird form of torture. Uh, uh, I I would love to kind of catch up on what what it what that is and how that came about and kind of I would I would read a long form article about that. Um, but also as it relates to television viewing and how we are our spectatorship is a different experience when we're watching on television versus which if we were there is I think of a a bowl game, a really minor bowl game in college football hmm. when the whole upper deck is empty versus mm-hmm. like you said, the Indian Premier League Cricket League where uh, every single seat is filled. And not only that, it seems as if every seat is filled by a fanatic uh, and how different of an experience that is as a television viewer to watch those bowl games yeah. that just seem so meaningless and boring and I don't know how and why they make money but they do uh, compared with something like the IPL uh, and yeah like you said I don't, I don't know how close of attention we would pay um, were, were the fans not there I, I think I, I agree I don't think you. that's why you and I are watching but I, I guess it, it, it makes me think that the product we're tuning in to watch wouldn't exist unless those seats were filled. Because I, ultimately, I think it comes down to a thing of exclusivity on one hand. And so something that appears to be exclusive, because if the stadium is full, it gives the impression that others want in there too, and they're just mm-hmm. not allowed in because they're not seats, so therefore it's exclusive and the meaningfulness of it uh, goes up. Uh, it's more than that, but Ultimately, I wonder about the extent to which we are going to need fans in seats forever or if we'll ever just stop going to games. I don't know. Well, I think that's particularly interesting in light of the fact that I think that um, the fans in the stadium are the ones that really make money for the teams. Um, mm-hmm. That they're Even with these massive TV contracts, the teams still need those folks in the stadium buying concessions and all the other stuff to make the money that they need to survive. And so I think that's the, you know, how does that business model change and what, um, what is a future that might be more online stuff? I, it's, it's really interesting to think about what that experience would be. I don't necessarily think the play would be that different. Um, you know, we go back to LeBron's comments about how this is, uh, he wouldn't play if there were no fans in the stands. And that's just, I think we're going to see that that's, well, I'm, I'm almost a hundred percent sure we're going to see that that's not the case. Right. Um, and then I think that the level of play is going to be very similar to what, um, we would expect otherwise. Cause I think once you get on that court, um, these guys want to win and there may be, there's even a part of me that wonders if it's a more authentic game experience mm-hmm. because you're not there to show off for the fans as much. Um, or at least that there's a remove, that takes you away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't know. That makes me think of the infamous game uh, scrimmage of the Dream Team mm-hmm. that they all talk about that happened and that those scrimmages before the Olympics were the most competitive games of their lives. And this is Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Charles Barkley saying that the most competitive games they ever played in their life were scrimmages against uh, fellow phenomenal basketball players with literally no fans and no. there's no footage of those games. Well, heck, I even think, 
like the last the court last quarter whatever uh, in quotes of the this year's all-star game gave us some of that same mm-hmm. stuff like it wasn't mm-hmm. about the consumer you know there were no commercials there were no anything else these guys just played for 40 minutes straight and really wanted to win that game mm-hmm. there is uh one other thing i wanted to bring up uh it might be one of my last points uh interested to hear what you think about it but I came across this concept of false consensus, mm-hmm. and false consensus, as I understand it, it's uh, probably a whole lot more to it. Uh, but the idea that we misperceive importance, or we we misperceive and thus believe that everyone thinks as we do, and the it it appears that in more ways than one, sports is a perfect vehicle or avenue for false consensus and my first thought is how it can go badly and so within the context of talking about something like a collective consciousness or a collective imagination talking about false consensus uh, sports uh, are are perfect for it because uh, it's easy to believe that what you're watching is important if everyone around you is watching it as well and so that's true for the spectator experience in the actual stadium but i do think there is more that could be said about it in the sense that it's something that can be exploited by huge media conglomerates Mm -hmm. and so for instance one that follows nfl might think that the nfl is really important and good for the world if they're only uh ingesting nfl-based media and so that creating a false consensus that is super harmful yeah i think it's really compelling because i think sports is sneaky in that um you know there's um i think we all understand on some level how unimportant sports are Mm -hmm. and yet um when you spend a weekend watching, you know, an NBA game, a PGA tour event, a football game and something else, all of a sudden you realize how dominant this narrative is. And you can come very quickly to a belief that this really is a very important part of our lives. When in reality, it's, Mm -hmm. it's totally, I think this has been the most compelling part of this entire coronavirus thing for me is uh, if I'm thinking positively about it, um, there's obviously more compelling things if we're thinking negatively. But um, is that it's putting paid to what really is essential um, in our lives, and we're seeing that you know, you know, as much as I love to go to the coffee shop, that is not an essential part of my life. As much as I love being able to go to Target and pick something up on a whim, that is not an essential part of my life. And in the same way, sports. Uh, we've been able to adjust very well without having sports in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, uh, I'm still worried that there's going to be an inflated sense of importance that when it comes back. And I'm worried because there's a lot of people pushing that narrative. Um, but uh, I think we've seen how truly unessential that all is in this moment. Right. Yeah, that's well said. Um, yeah, I... I I worry because I think um, these narrative machines around sports are so strong mm-hmm. um, that I think that we're going to see some um, uh, some real concerning developments in the future of sports if this doesn't 
if we don't kind of get a handle on how unimportant these things are in some ways. Yeah. True. But it'll be fascinating too, because I mean, like I said earlier on, these sponsorships are all going to dry up on some level. And so what does that mean for these sports leagues that are so dominated by that? And what does that mean for ESPN that makes money off of this stuff? What is, what's going to have to happen for those to be sustainable moving forward? Well, Nick, it's down to one of our essential questions, I feel like, which is that the vast, vast, vast majority of the sports media landscape is not asking the critical question, like, should we be doing this? Mm-hmm. And it's not... It, not only are they not asking that question, but they're exploiting the opposite. And within it is this very preachable me- uh, message that the experience you're having as a fan uh, is not only something you shouldn't question, but you should feel great about it and keep doing it and keep buying and keep spending and keep watching. So it it's exploiting the false cons- consensus kind of Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it is, you know, I think this false consensus goes far beyond just sports, but it's a, it's an interesting paradigm in which to imagine that. And I think our um, social media cham- uh, chambers, echo chambers, do a great job of reinforcing that mm-hmm. as well. And so when your entire time is invested on Facebook and uh, ESPN, you're going to come to a real inflated sense, even of how important the NFL is. I mean, I think... right. Uh, the ESPN doesn't make nearly as much money off NBA and these other sports, and so they don't promote them as much, which leads to a whole right. narrative about how important these things are. And I think that's even stronger in person for these things. So, mm-hmm. um, you know how, uh, you know, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before that there's real money and investment that comes out when a team wins a championship, but what is it covering up in that process? Right. You know, um, when the uh, when the Cavs won the finals, what was covered up uh, and what didn't we see out of Cleveland? What did that allow us to forget about for a period of time that we really shouldn't have been forgetting about during that right. time? Right. Just back to the sports minister that we we should tweet that sports minister. <laughs> uh, I I'm down for that, uh, um, Brock. We would we would. Um, uh, I don't know how to say this politely, but we'd be very excited to have you on the podcast. Yeah. Well, well anytime. Anytime. Literally, anytime. <laughs> oh, well, cool. Well, I'm good there. Unless you got anything else you want to point out? No, I think that covers it. But uh, thank you guys for listening. Give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this. Uh, and enjoy this sweet uh, outro music we got here. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Brad, and thanks, Trad, for our outro. The voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's nobody's calling. Nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. I was a huge Dikembe Mutombo fan.